0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 310. Today is Sunday the 13th of January 2019. And just before introducing my guest for this week, a quick announcement that my new book is just published and available as a paperback or ebook on Amazon. It's called Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence. Hope you take a look. So today's guest is Gian Piero Petrilleri, who's a leading professor of management at INSEAD with a focus on leadership and learning. In this conversation with Giampiero, we look at the most important qualities of leaders in today's business environment. As Piero says, leaders need to be both engineer and novelist. We also discuss the importance and role of ethics, the place of politics in business, and leadership of brands in a multinational conglomerate organization. A most stimulating interview that touches on some very important topics. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minterdial, Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MintoDial.com. Enjoy the show. Gian Perro Petriere, it's great to have you on the show. I've been dying to have you on ever since we had that marvelous experience uh, at the INSEAD reunion, where you absolutely wowed us, uh, intrigued us, and titillated us on this notion of of leadership in today's crazy world. So, Jean-Pierre, in your own worlds, tell us, uh, how how would you describe yourself?
1: Uh, I'm a management professor who trained as a psychiatrist and um, was interested in the way groups can make us thrive or can drive us crazy. And um, eventually, through the, you know, through the vagaries of, modern careers, ended up um, studying how people uh, find a sense of self, uh, pursuing this, this uh, idea or illusion of uh, becoming a leader and uh, working at a business school, very interested in leadership and learning. Um, and that's uh, that's who I am.
0: Well, we, we share this experience of INSEAD. And at the reunion, you talked about this notion of leaders today being needing to be novelist and engineer. And I, of course, I wrote up a blog post about how much this impacted me or made me think as a writer myself. How do you describe the place of humanities as an academic study, if you will, for leaders? And and to what extent should leaders today be looking for people with humanities backgrounds?
1: Yeah, I think... I think you have to think of the humanities as a metaphor for a serious sustained concern for what makes us um, what makes us tick what um makes us relate um to each other in a in, in a civilized way if you want and what makes um and what makes societies function so you know the humanities tend to investigate the question of what makes us different from um, our relatives, um, uh, in, in the great apes family, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and what keeps us, um, getting along instead of killing each other? What, um, makes a distribution of resources in a society fair and, um, unfair? How should we, how should we get organized and, and why? And, and I think, you know, you hear a lot these days, this idea that um, leaders need the humanities, and I think it's a way of saying that leaders need to continue taking this question seriously in um, in their work. That um, just because something works, just because something is efficient. Doesn't mean that it should exist or it's particularly useful or effective. I think it's a call for leaders to have um, a moral orientation as well as um, you know as a as an economic and functional orientation. But I also want to say I don't think it's anything new. Um, I mean, as you said in your um, in your question, I think forever leaders have had to um, demonstrate two kinds of performance, if they wanted their leadership to last. Their um, technical performance, the fact that they could achieve certain results, especially if they had promised to achieve certain results. Um, But also their cultural performance, which is um, their ability to embody certain values that um, um, their people, their community hold dear. If you can't achieve the results you promised to achieve, or if you can't embody the values, um, your community all dear, it's um, it's hard to be a leader. And you've got to do both at the same time. That's why I often say you cannot be alpha leader. Um, you, you're you not a leader at all, in the same way that you can't be alpha human. Uh, I mean, what distinguishes a human from a machine is that it uh, it's um, the, the quality of its um, existence, can't be simply reduced to whether it achieves what it was built to achieve. Um, humans uh, want different things at the same time, conflicting things at the same time, um, and uh, and I think those contradictions um, make us human in the same way that being able to look at both sides of um, performance makes someone a leader.
0: In what you say, there's maybe an implicit Acceptance of
1: imperfection. Um, yes, um, and I, I don't know. I, I don't even know whether 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 imperfection is. Um, I, I don't even know even what what perfection would look for a human or um, or for a society other than an illusion. Um, we're certainly perfectible. <laughs> I don't know if we're ever perfect. Uh, and if we believe we are, I think it's when trouble, very serious trouble starts.
0: You mentioned this notion of, of ethics and our ability to stand for something. In today's world, would you not say that that is more true than in the past? Or do you believe it's always been as true?
1: I think, I think all leadership is ethical. In that it, um, there's always an ideology under underlying it. You know, there's always an ideology under. You know, there's always an idea about um, who we are and who we should be and why that's good for us. The question is, um, who as is. Um, so I think in a world in which um, different groups come. Into closer contact more and more often, either because of mobility or because of technology, then uh, the the question of who are we, who are we, or who is we, um, becomes much more frequent and much more uh, difficult to answer. So in that respect, yes, that's maybe more true today. But I don't think it's um, I don't think you could say that um, leadership in the past didn't have an ethical. Dimension. It's just that ethical dimension was much less problematic because at least for a certain group and at a certain period of time um, People might have had a consensus about what was right or wrong or at least Might have had to pretend to have a consensus about what was right or wrong and then usually the people who embodied that idea of right would be picked as leaders um, I think it's a lot more um, There's a lot more negotiation that needs to happen once uh, once organizations or societies become um, more fluid and diverse.
0: Well, there's also an element of transparency because of the magnifying glass or maybe the microscope that the Internet allows for things to reveal themselves and then for the employees, much less the consumers, to be able to shout about it and and magnify their discontent. Yeah,
1: absolutely, or their fanaticism. I think it's um it's um it's it's a time in which it's um much easier to find people who are enthusiastic about your point of view and much easier to express your disappointment
0: um, so so what are the things you 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 uh, well, what it's, it's definitely interests me is is the notion of expressing yourself as a leader and of course they're making decisions there may be your culture i I look at specifically the area of multinationals and the challenge of having a a series of multiple brands underneath you because each brand by themselves ought to have its own set of values and territory and and key performance indicators and and specific um you know individual usps How does a CEO then incorporate or oversee that umbrella of brands while allowing the brands to be different? Well, maybe shifting
1: their view of what either their leadership needs to provide. I mean, very often we still think of leaders as having to provide a vision first and foremost, and therefore that that perspective already creates a conflict because how do you provide a singular, consistent vision when your organization um, includes um, entities who benefit from having their own distinct identities, right? Mm -hmm. And so your singular vision threatens their distinctiveness. So one way to deal with it is to actually changing your perspective from having to provide a singular vision to... Thinking of your job as a leader as having to provide a hospitable space, having to provide a space in which more than one story of um, equal citizenship and equal voice. And by the way, I think this is uh, true in a lot of um, in a lot of uh, struggles with leaders today, which is uh, we keep thinking of leadership. As the provision of a vision and that works very very well when there's only one single ideology one single story one single entity to look after when homogeneity is the name of the game then um, the visionary is a great um, form of leadership but when you have multiplicity when you have um, more than one voice more than one identity more than one story um, what's um, the challenge that leaders need to tackle is not to um give voice and embody that one single story and amplified it uh, for the world to see the challenge that, need, that leaders need to tackle is how do you um create a space where more than one story can come together and see each other learn from each other and, and grow um, and uh, and I think uh, you know this where I think leaders need to be less uh, visionary and um more connectors this um, these days and so in um, in many ways I would think if I were that CEO my question would be not like what's the overarching story but what's the um, what's the space in which these different entities can um, um, can thrive
0: I love it so if, if you were then a headhunter, and, and you're running, let's say, a company like Procter & Gamble, would that mean that you should not be hiring someone like Steve Jobs? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> In- Definitely.
1: Because you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to, you see, our traditional portraits of leadership are all over-indexed on consistency on that single-minded focus on one vision to the point of personal obsession, right? That the Steve Jobs example. That person that, you know, till the last minute um, embodies the magic of one um, simple yet overarching vision. But if you're running uh, an organization in which you're serious about... um, multiplicity, in which you're serious about diversity, in which you're serious about inclusiveness, what you need is leaders that are actually very comfortable with inconsistency, with um, not who's, um, who, and you need to focus less on their competence than on their capacity, not what they can manage, but actually what they can handle. Uh, And it's very hard for a leader to match their multiplicity in their external environment if they don't have a certain amount of multiplicity in their internal environment. And by the way, this is the idea that many multinationals apply when they send their eye potentials across different functions and across different geographies because you want to make sure that once they get to those top positions, they can actually find within themselves a piece of um, a piece that mirrors, that resonates with the different parts of the organization they need to lead. Um, and if they can't, then those parts of the organization will feel unseen, unrepresented, and alienated.
0: Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on the Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. My observation for having worked in a large organization which shared lots of individuals is that you tend to replicate what you are successful at. So if you get promoted from one company to another... Well, what I did there was what I, I knew how to do, and I did it well, and I was recognized for that. I get promoted. Absolutely. Then typically what I do is I reproduce that. And then the challenge becomes, how do you make different cultures underneath that? Because if I was on one brand now, I'm on another brand doing the same thing. Well, aren't I just harmonizing the brands?
1: Yes. Yes, that's, that's the challenge of change um, in any case, I mean, the human brain is a great generalizer. Whatever works, we retain. Whatever doesn't work, we dismiss. We are not um, amazing contextualizers. Uh, and, and there are good reasons for that. I mean, there's evolutionary advantages. But it's, um, it's very useful to realize that. And it's also important to recognize that in order to transcend that natural abil- that natural ability to continue doing what has worked, which by the way it's not you know it's got its advantages, um, we need to be curious and get help.
0: Another uh, so another area, Jampeira, that you you talked about and you talk a lot about is the notion of trust. Yeah. Without trust, there is nothing. What I wanted to throw out was
1: uh, asset and indeed, <laughs> If you have trust, every other asset accrues to you. If you have every other asset but no trust, people will get at you anyway.
0: So in in today's world, uh, maybe we can start off with how has trust changed uh, materially in in, in the impact of this new technology and the new thing? But the one thing I wanted to throw out there was uh, how has politics potentially changed the way businesses govern themselves and the creation of trust?
1: Um, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, let's say that there's a divisiveness that reigns and it sort of has a way of seeping into our personal lives. I believe that politics and, let's say, issues of the far right and far left are impacting every way we operate, including the way governance is done, the way even the stock market is now changing with, their, with um funds that are looking at esg and, and corporate uh, sustainable development it, it's it seems that the, the the world's shifting and what people might have trusted in the past has has been changing
1: i mean i, th- I think that's, i think there's generally been a trend toward increasing towards an erosion of trust and um, you know people put it down there's there's been a lot of studies that put it down to different reasons one is the fact that um, so-called leaders tend to accrue much more benefits than uh, than everyone else in which case it's not really leadership is it it's uh it's it's predatory behavior if you benefit only yourself and people close to you and everyone else pays um pays the price another is that um, there is a lot more opportunities to take refuge in uh, bubbles of people who share your ideas and beliefs. And when your ideas and beliefs get reinforced very often, you end up not just feeling comfort, but also feeling mistrust of people who don't share your ideas and beliefs. So there's this idea of increasing tribalism in, um, you know, in the, in the public and, and in the private sphere. Um, and uh, and certainly that goes with um, with a reduction of trust, uh, especially with a reduction of trust in uh, people who don't seem to be similar to us, or at least who don't seem to uh, to share our our cares and our and our concerns. Now, um, as to the question of politics. Um, I think business has always been in a way or other political you know in um, in many ways It's but for a long time. It was um, possible or acceptable to claim. It wasn't to say well. This is not um, You know, it's not a personal political statement just business become a lot more difficult not to see the implications of the things that we do Uh, and so I think, for example, you, you see it in the rise of um, of CEOs who speak up about political issues. At the same time, I think it's the byproduct of the fact that um, business has infiltrated um, parts of society that used to be considered um, the province of politics, of government, or um, of the professions of um, religion, you know, in I think in the in the lecture you attended, I talked about how you can look at um, you can look at social struggle as the struggle between, um, in some ways, spiritual or religious institutions and political mm-hmm. institutions and um, economic institutions. That's been the case through history. And when an institution becomes central to the social fabric, when it claims that it provides, it caters to most of. Um, our needs, then people start have raising their expectation. They no longer expect their leaders to make the organization work. They may, they expect their leaders to make society function. And what's happening with, um, with the trust deficit, uh, to me is that. As an organization, as a business, you can't come in and saying, Well, we'll help provide people meaning, we have a positive social impact, we'll um we'll also provide economic value, which is which is promising a lot. And then um organizing yourself and measuring yourself on a pure logic of effectiveness. Because that what you have is a fundamental um it's not a misalignment, it's it's um it's, it's a misalignment. That's, it's not just a misalignment. It's a misalignment that very quickly becomes a hypocrisy. Cognitive. Very, that very quickly codes as you're saying one thing and then you're doing another.
0: Cognitive uh, dissonance. You know what? When I listen to you, I, I think of this notion of tribalism. And on the other hand, you have on the one hand, oh, we have to be open, diverse to everybody. Look how great we are for everyone. But as soon as we're trying to please everyone, we are and effectively not creating an identity we're we're nothing.
1: I, mean, I, I think having a clear identity doesn't mean to be tribal. I think we need to make a very... Uh, you know, tribalism is not the way to have a clear identity. Tribalism becomes the way to have a clear identity when we're very anxious. Because you can have a very clear and very strong identity that is not predicated on uh, demonizing and dehumanizing those
0: who have a different one. So instead of using the word tribalism, community, because, uh, you know, tribalism comes with a sort of a negative warfaring type of connotation, whereas community doesn't.
1: Absolutely. And I think there are two kinds of communities. There are tribal communities and um, and there are civilized communities. What's the difference between the two is that a tribe offers you safety in exchange for allegiance. And um, a civilization offers you, um, you know, offers you in exchange for contribution. A tribe tends to wants to um, conquer. A civilization tends to um, invite. And, you know, if you look throughout history, the pendulum has always one between uh, our tribal and our, you know, and our civilized impulse ever since, uh, you know, Freud wrote about it in the in the 1930s, and people have looked at this um, from every other angle. But the moment we become, actually, the moment we become anxious about our identity, that's the moment in which our communities become tribal, become insular, in which we think we are, um, we are more human than those other people. And the moment in which we become more secure in our identity is the moment in which our communities actually become civilized, in which we say, um, mm-hmm. Oh, that's who we are. But I'm curious about who you are and um, what are you. And see, I think that's where um, that's where learning makes a big difference. I think you know, for me, um, the purpose of education is um, to take our tribal instinct and uh, and replace it with um, with curiosity. Because at the end of the day, it's very easy to be kind and trust. And trusting of those who are similar to you what's harder is to be kind and trusting of those who are different from you and unless you have that capacity your community cannot call itself civilized it's just a tribe
0: just to finish then Gian Piero, this notion of trust in in today's world I have my observation has been that trust is really hardened once you've actually been through tough times if you've lost together, if you if you and I know how to fight and, and say it out together, that is an indication and the road to real long term trust, because we know how to go through the bad times. Whereas, let's say, curiosity, being kind, being open are much more positive, benevolent. But it does strike me that we need to allow for more toughness in, in this world in order to achieve greater trust.
1: I mean, what you're describing is not just toughness; it's toughness and sticking togetherness, you could say. And um, but if there is a society in which you see that there is um, that there are tough periods, and in those periods, some people seem to benefit and others don't. Some people um, reap the rewards, and other pay the price. Then what you have is a recipe for mistrust which is I think what happens in a lot of places these days and so if but if a community is going yeah definitely absolutely I think that the best kind of trust the best kind of hope is the one that results from going through a rough touch and realizing that you can actually um, you know get through on the other side you know that's um, that gives you a sense of hope what I call resilient hope a hope that's not based on illusions but it's based on a realistic sense that you know we can get through this, or I can get through this, um, and that requires that requires a sense that we got through this together, and then you build trust. Yeah, absolutely, I would agree with that. But if you have a difficult period, and then it turns out that we are not really getting through this together, actually I'm getting through it much more easily than you are, then that's likely going to build mistrust, not trust.
0: My daughter put it to me: trust, Papa comes through experience trust you build over time you don't just get it you don't get it you need to earn it so lessons lesson learned from my daughter so jump here i know i need to let you go time is of the essence what's the best way for someone to read your best writings and whether it's hbr or follow you or get in touch with you if they want to know more
1: www.gpetriglieri.com i've got a website all my writing all the links to my work are all there and uh, that would be G P E T R I G L I E R I and uh, you know that's also as uh, all my contact information social media and whatnot
0: well Jean-Pierre, uh, I think you're an exceptional leader uh, in the position you take the way you you are able to at the one hand be in real life and, and engage people in the way you you teach but also being online and the way you write. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks a lot.
1: You're very welcome, Minter. Thank you for having me. Bye.
0: Bye bye. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's Finger Paint.
2: Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. And heal me with all your imperfections that you mention. Land